Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Braun Body Podcast. With me again today for the third time, he holds a record for three episodes on the podcast, is Eric Kaplan. Eric is a NSCA certified strength and conditioning specialist, and he's also a member of the Lebanon Valley College DPT class of 2022. So he's got that cool SPT after his name as well. Today, we're going to be talking about PNF applications, plyometrics, and overall just functional exercise and exercise progressions. With that, Eric, welcome back to the show. Thanks for giving me all this time that you have a plethora of here <laughs> leading up to finals week. Thank you, Dan. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Can't wait to speak with you about all this fun stuff. <laughs> so starting off with just basic PNF type stuff. Uh, for those who haven't heard of PNF before, this is called proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, and it's commonly used in physical therapy, uh, in strength and conditioning. I know if anyone's read Pavel before, he loves PNF for improving mobility and stability, and you're basically using different inputs to improve your movement quality. Uh, when we think about PNF, Eric, are there any specific movement patterns or anything that really come to mind to you? Well, the big one that tends to come up in, in human movement in the upper extremity is what would be called the D2 flexion pattern. Mm -hmm. um, so from a movement standpoint, this one's highly applicable just because it really resembles the classic overhead reaching pattern. So you're looking at elevation, abduction of the shoulder and external rotation kind of sweeping up from across your body into a, a position of shoulder elevation overhead. So when you think of upper extremity functional movements, that's the one um, that is usually being emphasized. So in, a, in the context of physical therapy um, with shoulder pathologies and a lot of upper extremity pathologies, that's the one that's really being hit on because of its functional application. Right, and that makes a lot of sense because you think about it, if you're looking at a mobility piece, flexion, abduction, external rotation, you're stretching the lats, which is a muscle that pretty much is tight on everyone. And from a stability standpoint, if you strengthen this pattern, you're strengthening muscles like the deltoids and the rotator cuff, which are commonly weak in people. And they do lead to a lot of pathologies, like you mentioned, such as impingement, instability, all kinds of problems at the shoulder. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's also a very trainable pattern, and it's a pattern that, you know, going outside of the context of physical therapy, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to train that D2 flexion pattern that's often overlooked. You see a lot of people doing the front raises, the lateral raises, the scapular plane raises, and all of that's well and good, but you can really fill in the gaps by utilizing these, these PNF patterns they kind of just hit on the fact that human beings don't really move in single planes. From a functional standpoint, we're always crossing planes and moving within planes, and that's really what PNF allows you to emphasize. Right, so kind of using more like a sword raise kind of thing off of a cable column yep. instead of like a shoulder raise. And obviously, like you said, that has better sport application on both the concentric and eccentric training component. Uh, it's something that if you're a PT and you use PNF, you know, you don't want to be the one providing manual resistance for all this stuff over and over again. So using the cable column or a band is a way to kind of work it in to people's daily lives a little bit more. Definitely. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. Now, transitioning to the lower extremity, the 
patterns are a little bit different when we look at places like the hip. Uh, what are we looking at there? Yeah, so D1 hip extension is probably the most common application for lower extremity PNF, which is a combination of extension, abduction, and internal rotation. So maybe a little bit less intuitive than the D2 flexion pattern of the upper extremity because you might be thinking, well, I don't you know, feel like I'm really turning my hip into internal rotation to any significant degree when I'm bringing my leg back behind the body. Um, but it really does resemble, if you, if you think of something as simple, simple as a typical gait pattern, you really do end up getting that internal rotation of the hip as the hip's coming back into extension. So it, it might not be quite as intuitive, but you do see pieces of these movement patterns happening within, kind of bodied up into the um, D1 extension pattern. For sure. And I like how the internal rotation actually fires up the glute med and glute min a little bit more because those are two muscle groups that we commonly see inhibited in people. They're often weak. So with the hip extension, we're hitting the glute max. Abduction and IR combined, we're really firing up those weak, weaker glute muscles that we uh, often see in pathology. So things like Trendelenburg gait pattern, uh, lower cross syndrome even. This is a great correction for that. Yeah, and I would agree that there, those are muscles that are susceptible to weakness, and you see a lot of weakness in those muscles, and whether it's a patient or a client, you can identify those things. Um, but in addition to that, in addition to the weakness, it's also the facilitation and the order in which and the, the functional firing of those muscles. So mm -hmm. not just the weakness, but just the fact that those muscles are firing synchronously, and they're firing appropriately. So it's not just the weakness it's also the firing pattern as well right it is neuromuscular facilitation right. after all right exactly now with that too obviously you have extension but you can also train flexion which is going to be more of a hip flexion adduction and external rotation kind of movement pattern can you see any kind of applications for that yeah, I mean, I think that, again, this one might be a little bit less intuitive. And I think that for the most part, when you're training this pattern, you're probably you're probably going to have to train it open plane, where as D1 extension, there's a lot of closed chain application. Um, so if you think of, you know, a sport application like a, a soccer player or mm -hmm. a kicker, um, you know, a, a movement um, or a, a position in sports where there's a lot of follow through across the body and hip flexion, external rotation, um, where you're generating power and momentum and, um, and trying to kind of distribute weight across the body. I think that that's probably where this D2 flexion or D1 flexion pattern probably is coming into play the most. So we will come back to PNF in a few minutes when we talk about a nice functional exercise progre uh, progression. But for now, we're going to talk about plyometrics because plyometric exercise actually uh, incorporates a lot of things that apply to both PNF and functional exercise. If you've heard of things like muscle spindles, Golgi tendon organs, quick stretch effects, uh, that sort of thing, that all applies to plyometrics. So, Eric, what exactly is the basis for plyometric exercise training? Well, plyometrics is a really good way to take advantage of some of the elastic properties of the muscles. So within muscle fibers and the tendons, especially, you have something called series elastic component, which is basically this feature of muscles and tendons, especially, again, the musculotendinous junction um, that respond to stretch. So under tension and stretch, you get this reflective 
and um, reciprocal forceful movement in the opposite direction that you're stretching. So in the context of a plyometric exercise, you see a lot of um, stretching into a squat type position followed by jumping or um, starting at an elevated surface, moving down into a surface below where you're again, reinforcing that stretch of the quads or the glutes or the hamstrings. And then often that's followed by an additional forceful, powerful movement um, either into it from a into a jump or a bound or some type of explosive movement. So you could imagine the amount of carryover into sport um, where power is really probably the most important component um, of fitness when it comes to training for a sport that you can that you can access because it really is what you need to function properly in a sport and to compete at a high level. For sure. No, I like how you. Uh, touched on basically the phases of plyometrics going from that eccentric stretch to a quick change. Uh, we call that the uh, mortization phase. And that's the uh, piece between the eccentric and concentric. So the stretch and the contraction, you want that to be as short as possible. And then you go right into that muscle shortening uh, contraction effect with the concentric. And like Eric said, from a power standpoint, this is your bread and butter for power training. And this is going to hit those fast twitch muscle fibers, uh, which we typically see in places like the glutes and throughout the legs. So from a sports standpoint, this has a big effect, but it also has a big effect in physical therapy and rehab because things like balance and fall deficits are a huge problem. And one of our uh, balancing strategies is called the hip strategy and the stepping strategy. So if you can't um, correct your balance. If you're losing balance or you're about to fall with your ankle, you end up using your hips or taking a step. And these muscles, uh, when strengthened, can help reduce things like fall risk. Now, as far as implementing these into a exercise program, uh, how would we go about throwing uh, plyometric training into exercise, whether it be functionally for sport or maybe for rehab? Well, I think um, from a sport standpoint, you really have to look at the sport very specifically and the physical demands that the sport is placing on the individual. Um, so if you're looking at a sport like we could take baseball, for example, um, in, in baseball and really any sport, but we, we can use baseball as an example. There is a lot of acceleration. There's a lot of deceler deceleration. So you'll get a pitcher who needs to create an immense amount of explosive movement to deliver the ball to home plate to the catcher. And then also has to be able to decelerate eccentrically the muscles um, that are antagonists to the ones that are producing the pitching movement. So um, for that particular athlete, you would want to make sure that you're doing explosive movements concentrically and then also making sure that you're getting that eccentric component. So you're thinking things like um, overhead ball throws with a medicine ball, so heavy loaded ball throws. Also in the opposite direction, catching um, and decelerating a ball that's coming at you. So really making sure that you're emphasizing both, um, both ends of the contraction um, and also emphasizing the fact that you need to produce a large amount of force in a very short period of time. And that really, again, does go for pretty much any sport. No, that makes sense. And applying the specificity principle is key there. Uh, you know, when we think about plyometrics, how often do we default to 
box jumps or broad jumps or, you know, basic jumps and hops, when in reality, a lot of sports involve those types types of patterns, but not every sport does. Uh, I'm sure we could think of sports that don't involve a whole lot of uh, jumping, for example, like uh, like a sprinter. You know, you're not concerned about your ability to displace your body vertically if you're a sprinter. Uh, however, you do need to be explosive off the blocks. So maybe this is where you use a different type of plyometric application that's more sport specific. Uh, how about from a rehab standpoint? If we're uh, working with a patient that, you know, maybe they had an ACL tear, uh, maybe it's more of an orthopedic population where uh, maybe middle-aged, older, and we're looking to prevent balance and fall deficits, where would we put the plyometric side of things in with uh, these other populations? Yeah, so in a rehab setting, this is going to be more in your phase four, as we would call it in rehab. So kind of getting into that return to sport phase, if you're working with an athlete, or if you're looking to work more into a functional phase with a client that's a little bit higher level. So it's at this point that you've established the mobility, you've established the strength, and now you're starting to get ready to layer that element of power and of eccentric loading on top of the strength that you've generated. So that's why the phase progression really does matter because you're not gonna start implementing these heavy eccentrically loaded exercise without establishing the strength first. You need to make sure that the strength, the foundational strength is there before you can start layering the power and the eccentric loading on top of that. So I think that's where the progression becomes really critical. Um, and really the sky's the limit. Once you get to that point, you can start getting really creative with your prescription. And again, thinking about the physical demands that are imposed on the individual and then figuring out how to take advantage of those demands and kind of building your prescription around it. Yeah, for sure. I like that a lot. Uh, from an implementation standpoint, if you're hearing this and you're saying, okay, well, I really want to do some plyometric training now. How am I going to put this into my program? Uh, I think personally, and I'm going to ask you for your take on this too, because I know you do a lot with these things. I usually go three, three to four sets, usually lower rep ranges because these are very explosive, high demand movements, and you don't want to push through fatigue here because when uh, mechanics break down, your injury risk goes up, especially with landing and that sort of thing is concerned. Plenty of rest in between sets. 90 seconds to two minutes because we are talking about a high level um, functional activity that's targeting those fast twitch muscle fibers. They do tend to fatigue easier. Uh, I like these in the middle of a workout or early on. I don't like to end with these because that's the point of maximal fatigue to begin with. And I also think you need to be smart about when you put these into your training. You know, I would not put plyometrics in someone uh, someone's training program, if their focus is endurance. Uh, I know a lot of people do plyometrics for endurance, but that's not really what the point of them is. I also wouldn't use them as much uh, in someone who is trying to do like a powerlifting kind of split, unless we're trying to maximize post-activation potential. That's a story for another time. Um, but for the most part, if you're in that kind of general strengthening or sport-specific or just trying to maximize performance, early to mid-workout, three to four sets, lower rep range, four to eight reps, 
plenty of rest in between. Uh, that's kind of where I fall for this. Do you kind of think the same? Or? Yeah, I think I would pretty much agree with all of that. I think that you know, general strength and conditioning principles would suggest that in terms of the position within the workout, you you want to keep these early in your workout. So you don't want to fatigue the muscles like Dan said. You don't want to uh, fatigue with general strengthening and hypertrophy type stuff. And then after that, go into a plyometric workout. I think the risk of injury just way outweighs the benefit uh, at that point. So I think from a physician standpoint, that's kind of where you want to stick it towards the beginning. And then from there, in terms of specificity, really, again, I know it's kind of beating a dead horse, but you really do have to look at the individual and determine how plyometric training might benefit them. I think you could make an argument for an endurance athlete, just using your example, to do some low-level plyometrics. You know, just because we're calling it plyometric doesn't mean that it's 16-inch box jumps or 24-inch box jumps or whatever. Um, you know, it could be very low level bounding or uh, single leg hopping, stuff like that from a, you know, kind of a prehab standpoint where you're eccentrically loading the muscles, but you're not doing it in a way that is really putting you at risk of injury. So there, there is potential for lower level plyometric training in scenarios where you're with an athlete that maybe doesn't need that really heavy loaded power emphasis in their workouts. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, now, kind of taking those two pieces and applying it to what you mentioned as a exercise progression. Uh, if you look online, you can Google core to the floor progressions and you'll get millions of different results. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to strengthen the core and lower extremities. Uh, these muscles are all interconnected through different anatomical fascia systems. So if you look up the serapes or the sling systems, uh, your glutes are literally connected to your lats. That's the posterior sling. Your adductors and hip flexors are literally connected through fascial systems uh, to your oblique muscles in your core. And that's your anterior serape. And it goes so on and so on. But basically, everything is connected. So when it comes to your training, you should make sure it matches that connected kind of thing and not spend too much time isolating specific muscles and instead train the movement patterns that work multiple muscles. So with that, we have this five level progression that we use a lot. Uh, we're both pretty familiar with it by this point, I think. Uh, so we're gonna break, uh, walk you through these five levels. So when it comes to level one, Eric, what are we looking at? I am a big fan of level one because it really is the foundation and it kind of informs the rest of the levels. And I think that people that don't start with level one and think that they're way beyond level one and don't need to think about it much in their own training or their client's training or their patient's training, I think you're really selling yourself and the people that you're working with short. Um, because it really gets to the heart of what core stability is. So it starts with breathing. You have to make sure that you're able to breathe. You have to make sure that the diaphragm is being recruited properly and it's moving properly. And you can pick that out in, in a client or a patient really quick just by asking them to, to lay in an unloaded position and to just breathe. So you'll see a lot of, in people that have breathing dysfunction or diaphragmatic dysfunction, you'll see the chest coming out and expanding way more than it needs to. So you're getting, you know, just these exhausted, accessory respiratory muscles instead of just using the diaphragm for its intended purpose. So making sure that you have 
um, your patients and clients diaphragmatic breathingly effectively before you're loading the spine in any way. So establish that first. And then from there, you can start getting into some bracing. So TA activation, making sure that they know how to draw the belly button and they're not you know, taking a breath in to draw the belly button. They're actually recruiting the TA and some of those deep core muscles. And then from there, you can start working into the bridge progression, which, you know, once you get to the bridge progression and you get your clients and patients confident with that, then you start really getting into, you you start opening a lot of doors when it comes to strengthening stability. So the bridge progression would typically start with just a standard two-legged bridge um, where you're just working in the sagittal plane. And then you can switch that to a single leg bridge once they're competent. And now you're working in multiple planes. So you're kind of fighting that transverse plane. You're getting a rotational component, but you're still essentially from a stability standpoint, working into hip extension in the sagittal plane. Yeah, spot on. Um, and if you want, you can throw what's called a half get up in the end. It's a half of the Turkish get up. Uh, so basically you go from laying on the floor to that position where you're up on uh, two legs and one arm and the other arm is held overhead. Um, But yeah, bracing and abdominal breathing are two things that people often miss. Uh, And there's a lot of people I see almost every day who uh, they squat or they deadlift and they don't have the breathing down. They don't have the abdominal bracing down. And I like to say that I'll see them in physical therapy in a year or two down the line. Uh, because they're loading four or 500 pounds on their back, but they don't actually have their spine in the position that it needs to be, uh, which is concerning. So I know this stuff may seem a little bit boring, especially when we're saying it doesn't directly involve weights, but it is the foundation to higher level activity. Um, if you can't move optimally in a unloaded neutral spine, don't expect to move well in a loaded spine. Uh, simple as that. Proximal stability. Yeah. It's a big deal. So taking us to level two. Now what are we looking at? Yeah. So level two is what you would kind of consider a semi-loaded position. So this is where your quadruped position comes into play. So if you imagine just being on all fours, you're not fully loading the spine, but you are kind of working against gravity to some extent. So now you are... Um, encouraging more inherent application or more inherent uh, activation of the core musculature. So um, it's being kind of imposed on you at this point. So um, from this position, you can do the classic bird dog is is kind of what you want to work up to. So a bird dog being this reciprocal movement of, say, the right arm with the left leg. So the right arm is going into flexion, the left leg comes back into extension, and then you shift to the opposite alternating direction. So that's ultimately what you want to work up to at level two. But the progression from just staying neutral and quadruped would start one limit at a time. So you would get in, you'd get the patient or client into quadruped, you would make sure that they're applying all the principles from level one. So making sure that they have that TA, TA activation still, you make sure that they're breathing appropriately, and then you can start lifting limbs. So you can start with just an arm or just a leg, and then you can start working into the reciprocal pattern that I just mentioned. So the idea here is that when you lift one arm or you lift one leg, now you're leaving basically a gap in your quadruped position. And when you have that gap, 
you're again fighting off some of that rotational movement. So you have some transverse plane stability. And in addition to that, you are doing some extension of the lower extremity, the flexion of the upper extremity. So you're still working in the sagittal plane, just like you were in level one. So you can kind of see how this progression works, that a lot of the same principles, actually all of the principles from the previous levels are always being carried in to the following level. Exactly. And with this too, I know some of you are listening and you're like, okay, how am I going to have time to fit all of this into my routine, my workout plan? These are great warmups. If you start your routine with three to five minutes, start with, you know, 30 seconds of diaphragmatic breathing and bracing, add in 30 seconds to a minute of bridging. And I mean, slow bridging, five seconds up, five second hold, five second down and then go into a bird dog for a minute or two. After four minutes, you're probably ready to go. Your core's fired up and your body's probably feeling good because these throw in mobility demands too. Uh, for example, you need hip flexion mobility in order to do all these exercises. You need hip extension stability, so glute stability to do all these things. So this carries over perfectly right into those functional patterns like the squat, like the deadlift, uh, and so on. So taking us into level three. This is where the PNF thing comes full circle. Yeah. We love this one. Yeah. So when you get <laughs> to level three, now you, now you are getting into more loaded positions of the spine. So we're at this point working into a half kneel position. So basically you're standing up on one knee with one leg back. So positionally, this is a nice position as well. I was kind of redundant, but <laughs> positionally, you, you now have this uh, hip extension requirement. So when you're up on one knee, you have the back leg in extension. Um, you're encouraging that core stability because you're standing up tall um, with the spine and you're also in a narrow base of support. So that's the big kicker with the half kneel is that you take a patient who just became competent with the quadruped. Now you're working them to half kneel. That's a, it's a pretty big jump from quadruped to half kneel. It seems really basic, but if you have someone with some type of chronic instability or that's coming off of some neurologic deficit, whatever it might be, uh, the half kneel can be a little bit challenging for people. So you can make that adjustment to the base of support by getting one leg out a little bit farther. It's kind of separating the legs, abducting the hips a bit, and then uh, and then kind of taking that and progressing that into a really narrow base of support. So layered on top of the half kneel, once you're competent with the half kneel and you can hold that position, you're doing all the breathing, you're doing the TA activation, you're stable, you can now start implementing things like the chop and lift, which is a really cool PNF pattern um, where you can start with basically a some type of implement, whether it's a dumbbell or a medicine ball, and you're just going through this diagonal PNF pattern, go, basically going from um, pocket and then up diagonally into a flex pattern. So D2 flexion. D2 flexion is where we basically end up again, as we mentioned at the beginning. So like I said, you can start with just standard resistance with just a light weight, and then you can progress into more complex versions of the pattern. Um, an isometric uh, version of the exercise was taught to us where basically the patient has their arms outstretched and then the therapist or the trainer, whoever it might be, is applying some resistance or perturbation to the outstretched arms to, again, just emphasize that core stability and maintaining the half kneeling position. And then you can kind of get creative with it. So you could do 
you could do a more plyometric version of the half kneel D2 flexion pattern chop and lift where you're actually throwing a ball. You could use resistance bands, cables, all kinds of stuff to achieve that pattern in the half kneeling position. So it's a really dynamic exercise because it's not limited to, it's limited to maybe a certain pattern, but it's not limited to the equipment and the uh, application to, you know, a variety of different exercises. Definitely. And the chop lift pattern and this uh, PNF technique actually comes from Gray Cook. Uh, so if you've ever heard of the Gray Cook Movement Institution, he's also a big uh, guy in the realm of physical therapy. Um, this is where you can go for more on that. But uh, we we use this a lot. We talk about this a lot. Um, I don't think a single day has gone by the last month or two where I haven't heard something about the chop and lift. Um, so taking us into uh, level four, level five here. Now we're starting to get into those movement patterns that we talked about before. Uh, so where are we looking at with level four and then kind of transitioning into level five directly? Yeah, level four is when you're starting to implement quote unquote functional exercise, more traditional functional exercise. So you're talking squats, goblet squats, a variety of different lunge patterns, med ball tosses. Um, you're, you're working with unstable surfaces, which you can start to kind of feed back into the other levels as well if you're, if you're pretty competent. But um, yeah, this is where you're getting into movements that require a pretty significant amount of mobility and then layering the stability stuff on top of that. So you could imagine just, you know, in, in talking about squats and lunges that there is a ton of stuff that you can do with this. One of the other progressions that is commonly used in this stage and, and perhaps stage three as well to some degree is messing with the visual field. So, mm -hmm. so head turns kind of toying with the vestibular system a little bit and also doing an eyes closed progression. So if you have a patient or client that is proficient with a lunge, maybe even like a front loaded lunge, you can start incorporating an eyes closed progression to basically take away some of the visual stimulus to encourage more neuromuscular activation. So there's a lot that you can do with this. We could do probably a full podcast just on talking, <laughs> talking about different progressions that you can do in level four. Um, and level five as well, but we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there, there's a lot that you can do here and there's a lot of way that you, ways that you can modify these exercises. Maybe we'll have to make a podcast, the progression podcast <laughs> in the near future. Um, and then level five is essentially taking all of these movement patterns, the squat, the deadlift, and now we're looking at them on one leg. So we're looking at the single leg squat, the single leg deadlift. Uh, and with the single leg deadlift, we typically do a contralateral load in the resistance. So if I'm doing the movement pattern on my right leg, I hold the weight in my left leg or left hand. That'd be impressive if I could uh, hold a dumbbell with my left leg. Um, but yeah, you hold it in the left hand. And the theory is this increases frontal plane uh, stability demands to increase gluteal firing. And then from there, you end right back in the uh, plyometric and higher level functional activity, or you can simply load these movement patterns more. You know, if you can do a goblet squat or a body weight squat with good form, then you can, you know, earn the right 
to go to the barbell squat and earning the right to something uh, in fitness is actually something that we just posted about today on Instagram. If you're following, if not, go back and check out Braun Body on Instagram. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think of anything else. Uh, I would just add in that when you're something to always remember is that if you're doing these level six, even if you're not calling it level six, if you're doing pliers, speed agility, if you're doing um you know advanced lunge and squat patterns always be thinking back to the level one stuff don't mm -hmm. forget about the level one stuff because like i said earlier you're always carrying stuff from you're carrying principles from the previous levels up through the level that you're working on so even though you're you're doing some advanced lunge pattern focus on the diaphragmatic breathing focus on creating stiffness in the core and stabilizing the spine yeah, that stuff is why, like Dan said, why you earn the right to progress from level to level. So you have to make sure that you're using those principles um, and making sure that they're a huge part of basically your setup for, for any given exercise in the later levels. For sure. And if you notice dysfunction along the way, don't just keep progression, progressing, correct it. Um, and I'll throw a quick 30-second plug for RNT in there because you've seen me using RNT to correct my lateral shift in the squat. Basically, RNT is using a band to neuromuscularly facilitate a proper movement pattern. So in my case, I shift to the right leg. So I have the band pulling me to the right. And you might think, okay, wait, that, that doesn't make sense. We're pulling more to that side. I'm going to say yes, because this is cueing my neuromuscular system that I need to put more weight on the left because we have a more of a pull to the right. And that actually corrects the movement pattern. You can use this at the knee to correct valgus collapse when the knee comes in. You can use this in squats, deadlifts, lunges. You can use it to resist or assist different movements. I like the anterior, posterior, the sagittal plane pulls. Uh, to facilitate more glute contraction on hip hinge and squat movements. Uh, you can really get creative with that. The sky's the limit. Uh, we are basically out of time on this episode, but that's another topic that could literally get its whole episode at some point. So with that, Eric, any final remarks or closing statements? I think you pretty much covered it. I'm glad we were able to uh, study in the form of a podcast here. Uh, that was really effective for me, and I hope everybody got something good out of it. For sure. Thanks again for your time and for being the first one to come on the podcast three times. That, that, that says a lot right there. <laughs> um, for those who are listening, make sure you go back and listen to other episodes with Eric because they've all been amazing. Uh, for more on Eric, you can find him on LinkedIn. You can find him on Instagram at Eric Scott Kaplan. And with that, thanks as all as always for uh, listening to this episode of the Broad Body Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, share with a friend, leave a review if you're listening on iTunes. I do like to read those. And uh, if you aren't already, give us a follow on social media at Braun Body. Thanks again.